please turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible. We'll turn to the end of that book in Joshua chapter 24 and read the first 15 verses. God himself inspired the writer to preserve these words for us, for our welfare. And this is what God would speak to us this morning. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. And Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I set the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. Thus far, reading from Joshua Please turn now in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Paul was concerned for the church at Ephesus and the churches around Ephesus, and he wrote this letter of concern. 
In the first chapter, he had opened with a doxology of praise for all the blessings that God has given his people in Christ. And then he prayed that they would have the eyes of faith to behold the wonders of what God has done for his people. The beginning of chapter 2, he got down to business and talked about how God had brought salvation to them. Not by their works, but by grace through faith faith alone. And now he continues to express his concerns in these verses that are before us. Beginning with verse 11, this too is God speaking through the apostle. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, you have written these words for our well-being, and we thank you for them. In them is our hope, and so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be working here among us even at this very hour, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold Christ by faith, that you would unplug our ears, that we might hear him speaking directly to our hearts. And by your grace, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. The last time that I visited my maternal grandmother alive in a nursing home where she was struggling with dementia, when I saw her, I greeted her with a big smile. And she stared back at me with a blank expression. And all she said to me was this. The only thing I remember is that I can't remember. The only thing I remember is that I can't remember. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know much of anything other than the fact that she knew she didn't know. It was very hard to see her that way. Because she couldn't remember, she couldn't appreciate present. She worried about what she couldn't remember, but couldn't remember. 
and made for a very tragic situation. And what was true for her physically and mentally is often true for us spiritually. And that is what the Apostle Paul's concern is in our text that is before us today. He himself was imprisoned in Rome because of the faith, because he proclaimed that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. The Romans said, Caesar is Lord. Paul said, Jesus is Lord, and so they put him in prison. And because he was in prison, he could no longer care for the churches that he himself had planted or visited to, cur to encourage and nurture and grow in the faith. And so he wrote this letter to the churches in and around Ephesus, where he had spent a long period of time. He began with that magnificent doxology one sentence, one long sentence where he just burst out with praise to God. It comprises 11 verses in our text. But one sentence of glorious praise to all that God had blessed us with in Christ. Ten times, he says, in Christ, in him, in him, in Christ. And then he followed that with a prayer that they would know the magnificent things that God had done for them. And then he got down to business of addressing his concerns. And as I said, he was first concerned about their relationship to God. So in the first half of this chapter, he reminds them of their desperate condition, that they were dead in transgressions and sins, that They were under spiritual oppression by forces beyond their control and that they were subject to God's wrath because of their disobedience. And it was only by God's grace that they received only by faith that they had hope that they could live in the way that God had already prepared for them to live to his glory. Now, Jesus, when he was here on earth, taught that there were two great commands. The first was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second was like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In the first few verses of Ephesians 2, that's what he was talking about, their relationship to God. How could they, how could that relationship be restored? Now here, as he follows, he shifts his attention towards, as it were, the second commandment of their relationship with one another. If these two commands undergirded the whole of the Old Testament, then these two commands undergird our life lived in response to God's self-revelation. And so in his very first word here in verse 11, he begins by saying, Therefore, therefore, because of what I've just written you in the first ten verses, because 
of how God has restored you to himself because you could do nothing but believe that God was gracious to you in showing his love to you. Therefore, the second command of how you interact with one another follows from the first of what God has done for you in Christ. Everything that Paul said about God restoring a relationship with them has implications for how now they can live with one another as members of Christ's church. The way to grasp the implications of their relationship with God for how they can now relate to one another is found in the second word, remember. Therefore, remember. This word remember is the first imperative verb in the, book, in the letter, and it is in fact the only verbal command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Once you get to chapter 4 through 6, it's all imperatives. This is how now I want you to live out what I've just taught you about being the church. But this is alone the verb of command. It's an important word because it is the only command in these first three chapters. It's important for two reasons. First, what people need to remember is what's important. You don't need to remember trivial things. And there's all sorts of trivia around us all the time. And now that we have the internet, now we all get much more information than we can even contain. And so what's important is that we remember what's important. To be told to remember something means this is important. You may have heard in the news, I think it was about a month ago, of this man who had invested very early in the days of Bitcoin. Now, I really don't understand Bitcoin. It's some kind of digital currency. But he got in at the beginning. And he made millions and millions of Bitcoin dollars, whatever that means. To him and to others, some of you, it may mean an awful lot. The problem was he had put it all in this locked account with a special password. And it was, he just let it grow. And it's been growing and growing. The problem is he can't remember the password. Not only can he not remember the password, there's none of this, we'll send it to your email. This was, there was so much money. This was a special account. You have 10 tries to get into the account, if you fail the tenth time, the entire account is just locked down and it is no longer accessible. He's tried eight times and he's been wrong every time. He is desperately hoping to remember. He's only got two chances left. We remember what is important or hopefully 
we remember. There's a danger when you don't remember, and that's what Paul is concerned about here, that they were in danger of forgetting what was important. To be told to remember highlights what is important. And secondly, the reason we're told to remember is that the truth is is that we often do forget, don't we? We often forget not just the trivial things that don't matter, but we often forget what is very, very important. So what is it that we need to remember? What is the Apostle Paul saying to the members of the church? This is what you need to remember. He says you need to remember who you were, you need to remember what that means, and then you need to remember who you are. You need to remember who you were. You need to remember why it's important that you remember who you were. And then you need to remember who you are now. So the first thing he says is remember who you were or remember where you came from. Remember whence you came. Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by his what by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What they were to remember was a relational identity. Most of the people in the church and churches in and around Ephesus were Gentiles. In those days, the big divide throughout society and culture was between the Jews on the one hand and the non-Jews or Gentiles on the other hand. And the distinguishing mark between the Jews and the Gentiles is that God in his covenant with the Jews had decreed that they would be circumcised. That the foreskin of their penis of the men would be cut off in a way signifying that God had to cut off the sin of his people to make them his own. And that would be a sign that they belonged to him. Whereas on the other hand, the Gentiles didn't want anything to do with that kind of procedure. This was not in a um, modern hospital with anesthetics and all the sharpest of instruments. Uh, It was not a pleasant experience, especially for adult men to have to experience this. Why is he talking? Why does he want them to remember that they once were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision? And there he says, he's referring to the Jews as those who were called the circumcision because they were circumcised. What he's doing is he's immediately shifting the focus away from their relationship to God and their relationship to one another, to other people. Paul seizes on this very visible mark of distinction within the culture at that time. And it was a cause for major division. Notice he says, called the uncircumcision that seems to suggest a kind of taunting. And for the Jews, they were very arrogant towards the unbeliever. Yes, they knew they had been chosen by God, and they looked down on those who were not a part of them. Of course, they themselves had forgotten that they once 
had been in a similar predicament until God had called Abraham, as we read today in Joshua. Salvation was through the Jewish Messiah. That's true. And that's why it was important for the Gentile believers to remember that once they had no connection to that Jewish Messiah. But the Gentiles weren't the only ones at fault. And he makes it clear in a subtle way here. He says that you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. And here he's alluding to the fact that God in the book of Deuteronomy had rebuked his people for their sinfulness, that they flaunted their circumcision, but their hearts had not been circumcised. Circumcision was more than a mark in the flesh. It was pointing to a reality that should exist in the heart. Both Jews and Gentiles tended to lord it over one another. And since that church was largely Gentile in background, he calls on them to remember their origin, where they came from. And he wants them to remember who they were, what, what they came for, because of what that means. You need to remember what that division means. Speaking as a Jewish believer, Paul is reminding the church members of five disadvantages of coming from a non-Jewish background. And that was important because salvation came through the Jews. What the Jews forgot is Abraham was called to be a blessing to all nations. But salvation would come through the Jews, through the Jewish Savior, the Jewish Messiah. And so Paul wants to drive home and he wants them to remember what that meant for them in terms of any kind of future. He speaks of five ways, five disadvantages. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time before you would ever come to a knowledge of Christ. You were at that time separated from Christ. Now Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. The title Messiah or Savior. He's saying, you had no Savior. When you had nothing to do with Christ, when you were totally separated as an unbelieving Gentile, you had no Savior. You were all on your own entirely. The best you could hope for was in temporal situations of trying to save yourself, and you couldn't save yourself forever, and often you couldn't save yourself at all. Next he says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now since Israel was the chosen people of God, they were considered to be, they were promised, a promised land, which was a picture for them of heaven where, where they might live with God, in fellowship with God. And he says, you were alienated from that commonwealth. In other words, you never really had a sure and certain home. In other words, you're homeless. 
You're drifting through this world without any real connection to a place that matters. You're saviorless. You're homeless. He goes on to say, strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenant of promise. We celebrated this morning a covenant sign. The sign of that promise of God where God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Come to me. God is saying. But what a covenant does is it establishes a relationship. They had nothing to do with God until God came to Abraham. And God called Abraham into covenant with himself and he gave him a sign of that covenant saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and my promise of this relationship goes on for generations. Not only for you, but for your children after you. This is a promise of relationship. They were meant for relationship. They were meant for relationship with God. But when they rebelled against God in the garden and God cast them from the garden, they were now friendless. They had no meaningful relationship. The first thing they did, indeed, the first man and woman, was accuse one another. They're without a savior. They're without a home. They're without a friend. He goes on to say, having... No hope. If you banish God, what hope is there? You can't save yourself. You have no home. You, ha you have no friends. Even the best of human friends is going to fail you at some point. So they're hopeless. And then he concludes it by saying, without God in the world. Now, He's not saying there is no God. God was and is and God was in the world. But as far as they were concerned, they were without God in the world. They had no way to connect with that God. It was a sad and horrible plight. Now Paul was addressing their plight from the Gentile perspective. It was a Gentile church. But the Jews themselves had their problem as Joshua had to remind them that they needed to remember their God and choose who they were going to serve. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, just before they go into the promised land, over and over we hear God's command, remember who you were, remember where you came from. Remember the Lord who gave you all these homes and cities that you did not build. It's not just the Gentiles that have the problem, but he's speaking to them as though it was a Gentile problem because they were largely a Gentile church. But their forgetfulness undermined their healthiness before God and their usefulness to God which is why they needed to remember who they had become. Remember who you are. That's what verse 13 is about. But now, a sudden shift. This is what you were, all forgetful, but now. 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This but now is like the similar but God in verse 4 when he was talking about individual relationship to God when they were dead in their sins and subject to God's wrath. But God has saved you in Christ. Now he's talking about how you're lost and alone on your own. But now, you who are far off have been brought near. That far off and near is how the Jews viewed themselves. They were the ones who were near to God. Everybody else was far off. That was the language of the Old Testament about the Jews and the Gentiles. We see this in Isaiah 57, verse 19, where it says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Here God is declaring he will offer peace both to the Gentile as well as to the Jew. And that was visually portrayed in the temple. You'll remember at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, and then there was the holy place where only a priest could go. And then there was... The courtyard where the, the priest wandered and offered the sacrifices. And then there was the, the court for the men. And then there was a court for women. And then you had to go down to a lower level. And then finally there was a court for the Gentile. But the wall was high and they couldn't even see what was going on. They were far off. And the Jews in the construction of the temple, that was made clear to them. They were far off. But now, but now those who are far off are now brought near. How could this be? Well, by two ways, he says, but now in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. If you are joined to Christ, if you have been united to Christ, now you're brought near. Verse uh, chapter 1, the doxology is all about being in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And it goes on and on of how God has blessed us in Christ. All the blessings of Christ, all the blessings of God can be found only in Christ. What matters is not what you were before. What matters is, are you in Christ? Have you put your trust in him? doesn't matter what you were before. Some of you may be struggling with ugly past. Some of you may just be drifting along with indifference. What matters is not what would happen before. What matters is right now. Where are you? Are you in Christ? Do you see your hope is resting solely upon him and what God has done in and through him? That's what matters. 
But how can we even get in Christ? Well, he says at the end of verse 13, you were brought near by the blood of Christ. Only in his death on your behalf could God's wrath be averted. Could the breach be bridged so that there would be true reconciliation between God and people. But you see, in the very act of doing that, it bridges the breach between the people. Those who were far have been brought near. Those who were Gentiles with no hope, no God, no Savior, now have been given a Savior. They have been given a home. They now have a family and friends. They now have hope. They now have God. The Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles. The Gentiles thought they were better than the Jews. Both needed to remember who they were in Christ. Both struggled with forgetting who they were in Christ. Christ has changed everything. That's what we celebrated today in Amber's baptism. There was an old Amber. She lived on her own. And it wasn't satisfying. And then God opened her eyes, introduced her to Shine. Shine spoke about Jesus in church. Shine brought her here. She met God's family. She not only heard about God, she experienced God in the midst of it. She wanted, she was looking forward to today. She chose this day, Pi Day, 3.14. She wanted to remember the day she was baptized. And we're going to help afterwards by having a celebration with Pi. But God has himself done what none of us could do. He has acted in sending his son to bear the sins of his people so that the sins would be paid for. So that there would no longer be any offense between us and God. Because Jesus took the offense upon himself. And it's because God has done that for us in Christ that we can begin to be who God meant us to be. That we can begin to live before God in his presence in fellowship with God because God has removed the barrier, not only between us and him, but between us and one another. God meant us to be a family, a people. He created Adam and Eve. He just didn't create a man. He created us to be social beings. And when we forget God, all we do is start trusting in ourselves. And when we start trusting in ourselves, we start separating from others. Because you can't trust those people. You don't know what they're really thinking. You don't know what they might do. You know, they let me down once before. Or maybe they've not, but maybe they will because somebody else did and you just never know. You don't need to live in fear and confusion and anxiety and suspicion.
because of what God has done in Christ to bring us to himself, now God is working to breach, to break down all the walls between people. Now maybe some of you have never come home to God. Some of you have never heard that God cares. He does. That's why he sent his son. You're all by yourself. You might taste the smile on your face, but in your heart, you sense that loneliness. Dear friends, there is an answer, and that answer is to be found in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that God sent. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. He, he just sent his son. All you need to do is embrace him. With him, you don't need to worry about social distancing. He draws you near. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus understood the struggle it is, living in alienation from God. He says, come to me. But he not only invites you to come to him, but when you come to him, he gives you a new family. He gives you a place. He gives you hope. He gives you himself. Maybe God seems far away. But God is as near to you as the promise of Jesus Christ. And you can have what Amber has found and others of us have found. Now, maybe some of you who have professed Christ have gotten caught up in this world and all its craziness. And maybe you've been so worried about getting ahead yourself, you've forgotten about Jesus. And maybe in forgetting about Jesus, you've been drifting from one another. But friends, you can come back to God. Christ is there with his arms wide open. I would urge you, Call out to Jesus. Remember. Remember who you were. Remember all that that means and all the agony. But remember who he is and remember who he has made you to be. And reach out for him. And find your life once again. Because by his grace, God is working to make his children become what you on your own could never be. He's given you a home, an inheritance in heaven, a family, both here on earth and in heaven. Dear friends, the Lord who calls you to himself calls you to live in fellowship with other people who have also been called to God. May that be our trust. May that be our testimony as we live for him by his grace in this troubled world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do thank you. that we all at one time were alienated 
by our sin of our father Adam, that we all seek our own way all too easily, and yet you sent Christ to do what we couldn't do. And you not only sent him to bring us to yourself, but to bring us together as your people. Please give us the joy of salvation, of knowing that we have a home, of knowing that we have a hope, of knowing that we have a family. And may we be that family to one another. Show us where we fall short. Give us strength and wisdom to do better. And may we always look to Jesus, who truly is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name that we pray.